All right, we're going to be in Luke chapter 12 today, so when you get your Bible, if you want to open up there, and as we're still passing out Bibles, as you're still making your way there, let me, let me just kind of introduce briefly this section of text, where we're at today. Now, I'll do it this way. How many of you guys were at the men's conference uh, this, this last month? Lots of you guys, right? Great men's conference. Friday night, started it off, <clears throat> and um, preaching was awesome. It was amazing. No, I'm kidding. I taught on Friday night, but anyway... No, Friday night was, was great, but it, but it started raining. First rain we've had in a long time. And uh, just the skies opened up. I'm thinking, man, you know, let's see how our roof holds up. Thank you, Jesus. No, no leaks, you know, um, at least in this building. So that was good. Um, and, uh, and so we go. We're going to go to get dinner after uh, the message. And uh, so a bunch of guys pile into to my car. And by my car, I mean my, my wife's car. I'm driving her car on that Friday night. <laughs> Lucky her, as you'll hear in a minute. So anyway, um, a bunch of guys pile into my car, and so we're waiting for Zach. Uh, my son-in-law leads worship, and Zach's going with us, and he, his car was parked over here. He was moving it, so I pulled around. I'm watching Zach. Now, basically, now I got reasons. I got excuses, all right? It was raining. The, you know, the dog ate my homework. I, you know, if it was night out, the sun would have been in my eyes. No, it was dark. All of this stuff, I was distracted. And I sideswiped one of our light poles out here in the parking lot and just wiped out, like I didn't just damage part of the side of the car, I damaged the entire side of the car. The front bumper, the two doors, the back quarter panel, I, when I do it, man, I do it right. We're talking almost $5,000 worth of damage to my, to my wife's car, right? So I'm suing the church, man, it's just, why did they... <laughs> No, the point was, I was distracted. I was distracted. I just was not paying attention, you know, for for a multitude of reasons. Well, hold that thought. See, because here in Luke chapter 12... As we've seen Jesus, he's, this is the last month of, of his ministry. He's getting ready uh, to, to pass the baton on to his disciples. And, uh, and so he has four warnings for his disciples here in Luke chapter 12. He's, got, uh, he's, he's telling four things to beware of. Beware of hypocrisy. We've looked at that. Last week, he, he warned them. He said, beware of covetousness and worry. We looked at that last week. Today... We're going to see that he he warns them, hey, beware of being spiritually disconnected or being spiritually dull. You know, the the three types of people in the world that I always like to talk about, right? Three tribes. There's there's those that make things happen. There's those that watch things happen. And there's those like me on Friday night who ask, what happened, (laughs) right? What just happened? And, And the point that Jesus makes today in our text is that spiritually there are some in this third category. There are those that just don't have a clue and they don't want a clue. They don't even want to call a friend or buy a vowel or whatever it is. They just don't care. They're spiritually dull and they live their lives in a functional state of disregard. A functional state of disregard. Now, to set this up, I'm going to do what I did last week. I'm going to uh, just give you a quick review of what Jesus has said because one of Jesus' main points leading up to this as he began this series of warnings was to focus on the afterlife. And as Jesus focused on the afterlife, his emphasis is, look, there's a day coming after this life where everything's going to be revealed. 
Jesus says this, if you look at verses 4 and 5 here in Luke 12, he says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. In other words, Jesus saying here, emphasizing here, don't live a fake life for the temporary and fleeting approval of men on earth, but live for the one who holds the power over eternal life and death. That's his point. And last week, as we were looking at his warning against covetousness and worry, Jesus again focused on the afterlife. And, and he gave this parable of this rich man who was completely self-absorbed. And, and his only regard was for the material things of this world. It was all about my stuff, my plans, my life. And Jesus' point in the telling of this parable was that you can live a self-absorbed life with, with a perpetual thirst for more. Hey, you want to live like that? You can live like that but you will completely miss the fact that God owns everything and that a day is coming when we have to give an account to him, an account for how we live, an account for how we handle the things that he entrusts to us. And so Jesus continues now with these warnings. And we pick it up in verse 35, and he says this. He says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning And you yourself be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch, or come in the third watch. We're talking the middle of the night here. And find them so blessed are those servants. But know this, Jesus warns, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not Expect Now, there's a lot to unpack here. Let's jump into it. Jesus here is articulating how you and I should live in light of eternity. This is his, his warning, his admonition, that because there is an afterlife, that there is a particular way in which we need to live. And so his focus here is how you and I, how we, his servants, should live in expectation of our master. And to illustrate this, he uses the example of servants from his day. Basically, there's a master, there are servants, the master goes away to a wedding feast. In this day and age, a wedding feast was a long, drawn-out affair. It could take a very long time. And, and so he basically says that, that the attentive, attentive servants are a picture of how we are supposed to live, waiting for our master to return. And Jesus here, I'll put this on the screen for you, for you note takers, he lists three things that characterize living in faithful expectation. Okay? Three things that characterize living in faithful expectation. He describes our relationship. He describes, secondly, our responsibility. And thirdly, he describes our readiness. 
I want you to notice first the relationship that Jesus describes. It's right here in verse 36. He says, you yourselves are to be like men waiting for their master. And so you've got a master, and then you have the men who are waiting for them. And in verse 37, he qualifies, who are these types of men? What kind of men are we supposed to be? And there he uses, if you'll look, the word servants. He uses the word servants. That's who we are supposed to be. There is a servant and there is a master. And Jesus is saying in regards to relationship where the afterlife is concerned, this is the relationship that we need to have with our master, the Lord. There is our master and then there is us, his servant. Now a servant is a slave. It means to be devoted to another to the disregard of your own interests. It's the Greek word doulos which comes from the root word to bind, to bind. And, and the, if you read in, in Vine's Expository Dictionary, it basically says there that the doulos was originally the lowest form of servitude. And, and that it came also to mean one who gives himself up to the will of another. And so it was a, it was a completely self-surrendered, I will be bound to you, completely giving up all of my rights kind of relationship. Now, when you respond to the Holy Spirit and you give your life to Jesus Christ, that's what it's supposed to look like. That's what your relationship is supposed to be. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 4.10, Jesus, quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13, he said this. He said, For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Jesus expands on this in Luke 17. He says, And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will, uh, you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? Jesus says, I think not. And so likewise you, when you have done all of those things <clears throat> which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants We have done what was our duty to do. Here's the deal. Jesus ain't your homeboy, okay? Jesus is not your personal genie who exists to grant you all of your your wishes and, and just attend to your every waking whim and desire. That's not the relationship. He's Lord. He's Lord. The dictionary defines Lord this way. An owner who has authority, control, and power over others. Let me ask you a question. Does Jesus own you? Does Jesus own you? See, because here's the the deal. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that we are either owned by God or we are owned by sin. There really is no in-between. You're owned. You're either owned by God or you're owned by sin. Here's how Paul put that to the Romans in Romans 6. He said, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You 
you got to serve, like Andre Crouch says in his song, man, you got to serve somebody. you got to serve someone. And see, God's heart is that we should serve Jesus as our master. Listen, because he's a good God who sets you free. You, you, when, when the Bible talks that <clears throat> there, is a, there is a relationship that we have, there is God who is master and there is we who are slave. Listen, it's not because God wants to, to you know, make you squirm. It's not because you know, God doesn't think anything of you. No, it's because God's a good God and his desire is, listen, that he's going to set you free. Listen, that's what the Bible says. Romans 6.18 says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. See, this is the idea. This is the relationship that, that, that when we come to Jesus, yes, he's our master. Yes, we're his slave. But when we become a slave to Jesus, it sets us free. That true freedom is only found in that relationship. And, and so Jesus says here, listen, that's the attitude that we need to have. That the relationship we have to embrace is this servant-master relationship. That's the first part of living faithfully, right? It's anchored in getting our relationship with God right. Now the second thing that characterizes faithfulness, Jesus says, is our responsibility. Right? Three things that characterize faithfulness. There's our relationship. First, secondly, there's our responsibility. And Jesus basically is saying here that there's three ways that we are to live in responsibility. Right? And so these three ways that we are to live in responsibility, Jesus says that we are responsible to have our waist girded. Secondly, that we're responsible to keep our lamps burning, and thirdly, that we're responsible to watch expectantly. Now, living with our waists girded, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, listen, living with your waist girded, it's a metaphor, right? And the metaphor is this, is that we are to have a working faith. That's what the Lord is talking about here. That, that you, in being faithful and, and live, you know, living out a faithful life, Yes, it starts with your relationship with God, this servant-master relationship. But secondly, you've got to understand that as a servant, you've got responsibilities. And the first responsibility is that you have to have this working faith. See, in Jesus' day, they wore robes. And so if you were going to get to work, you would have to cinch that robe up. And so you would gird your waist, you would pull the the robe up, you would tie it with a sash, and then it became kind of like shorts, and now you were ready to get to work. You were unencumbered, right, to have this ready-to-work, unencumbered kind of position. Now, the metaphor that we might use in our days is, hey, roll up your sleeves, roll up your sleeves and get to work. Now, let me give you a visual of this. When we were building this church, we hired a general contractor to oversee the scope and scale of all the work. And then that general contractor hired some various subcontractors to do specialized work. And so one of the subcontractors, let me, okay, let me, let me just do this first before, before I say this. No, I'm not. One of the subcontractors that he hired was, was our landscapers. We, he hired a, lands, a landscape company, and they sent 10 of their employees out to do the work here, the landscaping work. 
Now, everything I'm about to tell you, we told to both the landscaping contractor and to every single one of these employees face-to-face, all right? So, so we've been there, done that. But I will tell you that it rapidly became apparent that we had different needs. See, we had the need for the landscapers to show up with their waist girded to do the work. And apparently, they had a need to show up and take a nap in the trash enclosure, Okay? Eight of the ten workers who came out to do the work, we would consistently find them taking a nap in the trash enclosure. I am not kidding you. We would walk out to the trash enclosure and say, I think it's time that some work should be get done around here. You know, and you go, wait, wait, no, listen. We're paying them to do a job. They're getting paid to work, okay? I'm just old enough to come from the generation that if you get in a paycheck, you need to earn it, Okay? I'm sorry. And so we had different needs. It was like, look, you're getting paid to do a job, yet you actually have to work. Get to work, for crying out loud. And, and so we, we would say this directly to the workers. We would say it to the landscaping contractors. We would say it to our general contractor. What do you think the last project to, to one of the last projects to get finished on this project was? It was our landscaping. Okay, so, so this is the picture here. Now, sadly, the same ratio, I'm going to make it worse, okay? If you're awkward now, just hang on. Give me two minutes, all right? This same ratio holds true within the body of Christ, sadly speaking. I serve on the boards of five different churches, okay? Our, our church is one of five church boards that I serve on. And I will sadly tell you that the stati- there is a statistic that is out there. It, goes be- it transcends churches. It goes into to general workplace. It's called, I think, the Pareti Principle, um, that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Well, I'll flat tell you that's true in the church. Every church that I, that I serve on the church board of, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Less than 20% of the people give over 80% of the money. This is true on every church board that, that, that I'm on. Listen, on average, 50% of the people in any given church, they do nothing and they give nothing. Now, let me qualify this. If you're a baby Christian, if you've just given your life to the Lord, and God is you know, just starting to work things out in your life, well, then, you know what? Praise the Lord. You, need, you just need some time. To grow, but here's the problem. The problem is, is that for so many, they'll come to church, but they'll just get comfortable in giving nothing and in doing nothing. And listen, here's why that's a problem, and I want you to hear the heart of God. Okay, this isn't this isn't me talking with an ulterior motive, saying, "Man, I wish you showed up with your checkbook. I wish you showed up with your waist girded." This is not me. This is not me. I want you to hear the heart of God here. Okay. The heart of God is this. This is why this is a problem. The heart of God says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, you are the body of Christ and members individually. The heart of God says in Ephesians 2, 10 that we are his workmanship, that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, listen, this blows my mind, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's what that means. What that means is that your life, and the things that happen in your life and those opportunities that you have to gird your waist, those have been 
orchestrated in heaven before the world even existed. That God orchestrated. That's what, this, that's what God's word says. Now listen to this. Again, Ephesians 4.16 tells us that God makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So you see there the counsel of God and the picture of God. And so it becomes this huge problem when we are AWOL. When we are absent without leave, when we are not girding our waists as we are instructed to by Jesus, so look, you want to be living a faithful life. What is it that everybody hopes to hear when they get to heaven? They want to hear the phrase, well done, thou good, and what's the word? Faithful servant. Faithful servant. Okay? And so the problem that happens when we are not faithful, and we don't gird our waist, and we don't say, here I am, Lord. Lord, I know that you are always working. I know that there are works that you have foreordained that I'm supposed to be doing. And you make it clear in your word that the works that I'm supposed to be doing aren't Lone Ranger works. I'm supposed to be part of a larger body of Christ. And that it's all of us working together. Now, we live in a day and age (coughs) where Satan is attacking community. I have never seen such an attack on the local body of Christ as I see in our day and age now. Christians have contempt for the local church. Can I tell you that the local church is the bride of Jesus Christ? That Jesus died for the church? You say, well, the church is people. Yes, it is. It's people together in community. Take some time and study the one another's of Scripture. You will see dozens and dozens of Scriptures where the Lord intends for you and I as Christians to be gathered together in this, in the local church. And it's not about the local church, the organization. It's about the local church, the organism. Okay? And the organism is us together. So it is God's desire that we should say, here I am, Lord, and I'm a participatory part of this local church, of this organism, of these people that you brought together. And the enemy, he wants to isolate us. You go out to the restaurant and you look, and there's a table full of people. They're together, but they're all isolated. They're all on their phones. They're all doing these things that take them away. No, no, we're supposed to be living life together. And so the special work that God designed for you to to do When you're AWOL, it's left undone. And the health and the growth of your brothers and your sisters suffers when we will not gird our waists. So there's three areas that Jesus is talking about that characterize faithfulness. There's our relationship, number one. Number two, there's our responsibility. And we've seen that the first area of responsibility is that we are to gird our waist, to have our waist girded. The second area of our responsibility, Jesus says, is that we're responsible to keep our lamps burning. That we're responsible to keep our lamps burning. Now, living with our lamps burning is, again, it's a metaphor. And the metaphor is simply this, that we are to have a displayed faith. Our life is, and our faith is to be lived on display for other people to see. We looked at this last chapter in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus says, No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see 
the light. Now, Matthew records Jesus' command this way. He says, you are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and they put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, notice that Jesus never said that we're to become light. He simply said that we are light, and by the things that we do, we either fulfill that or we fail that as Christians, as followers of God. Job, in Job 18.5, says this, The light of the wicked indeed goes out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. But conversely, as Christians, Paul said this to the Ephesians. He said, For you were once darkness... But now you are light in the Lord, and so the command is walk as children of the light. Now, understand that as we consider our responsibility to have our waists girded and to have our lamps burning, as Jesus gives this, this is not an either-or scenario. This is not an either-or prospect. Hey, we need to have both. We need to be doing both. The psalmist said this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Here's the idea. The idea is that the light of God's word illuminates my steps and it also shines in my walk. And so the, the, there are those, some well-meaning people that you will encounter who truly, indeed, they get it. They have their waists girded for service but they have no light that's shining. And and at the end of the day, listen, what I want you to understand is all of the works that we will do in Jesus' name are meaningless if there's no illumination to them. There has to be that illumination. It has to be that, that pure light of God that's emanating in and through everything that we do, that it's saturated, that what's happening here is this legit response to God's word working in me. We have the worship team up here and they're singing and, and, it's, and I'm in my, in my chair, I'm just worshiping Jesus and I'm just, you know, going right in to the throne room. And, and we had this wonderful meeting with all the worship leaders this last week. We went out, we got away for the day. Uh, I joined them for, for, you know, a couple hours and just trying to share my heart with them as they're seeking just to, to seek the Lord on how they're going to serve him in the function that God's given to them. And we talked about this idea, you know, it's not if you're on your note, it's why you're on your note. That, that you know, when, when people sing, um, you know, and sometimes, you know, you'll watch uh, some sort of a, a production or, you know, America's Got Talent or whatever it is. You might hear somebody singing with a beautiful voice, but sometimes you'll hear one of the coaches say, I didn't believe you. You ever, you ever heard one of the coaches say that? They say, oh, you know, you, you've got this great voice, but I don't believe you. You don't mean what you're singing. And sometimes it can be that way in worship, where you can have somebody who's brilliantly gifted, but really what they're doing isn't illuminated by the light of God's word. It's just them singing words. And there's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference. When someone steps up onto the platform in church to lead us in worship, if they're illuminated by the light of God's word, if they are in this this intimate relationship with the Lord, and you couple that then with the, the waste being girded for service, that's a beautiful combination. Because then what happens is you go, well, 
what's inside them is now shining forth for all to see. That's what Jesus is saying here, that that's how we are to serve in that capacity. I like what David Guzik said. He said, you may have an inner willingness to serve God with your waist girded, but not have the illumination needed to serve him well, the light of God's word burning brightly. This can certainly happen. And so it's so important. And by the way, now more than ever, this is important because we live in a day and age where we're ruled by feelings and we're ruled by emotions. And we can do a lot of works motivated by our feelings and by our emotions. But listen, the exhortation here from Jesus is that, listen, this faithfulness, you've got the responsibility in your faithfulness Hey, to, to have your waist girded and to have your lamps burning. It's not either or, it's both and. Well, the third area of responsibility that Jesus says that we're to be responsible to watch expectantly. That we are to be responsible to watch expectantly. And so, <clears throat> he says there in verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. That word watching, literally, it means to be awake and it means to be alert. Now, here's why this is so important. First of all, there's the primary reason that Jesus addresses here in our text. He tells us why we need to be watchful, why we need to watch expectantly. He says that we're to do this in anticipation of Jesus's return. Notice what he says there in verse 40. He says, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Understand, Jesus' first coming that we celebrate at Christmas, right, when Jesus came, what was that? That was Jesus coming as a suffering servant. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark ten forty five. Not to be served, but to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus' first coming was his coming to give his life for your sins, to die on the cross for your sins in your place. He came as a suffering servant. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I come and I give my life. And if, if, if whoever will believe on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart of flow, rivers of living water, he came as this suffering servant to take your sins upon him. And now what happens since Jesus came, his first coming, coming as a suffering servant, coming in the likeness of men, being born in humble circumstances, dying a humiliating death, after his resurrection and ascension into heaven, we now live in this unique parenthesis of time. And we live in the time period between Jesus' first coming and his prophesied second coming. This is what's known as the age of the Gentiles or the time of the Gentiles. And so you and I live during the time of the Gentiles where God's love is poured out on all humanity and the, the exhortation is that we as Christians should go forth and we should share the gospel, the good news, that there's a God in heaven who loves you, that he died on the cross for your sins in your place and he gives to you the invitation to become a child of God. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just, the Bible says, to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus says, look, I stand at the door and I knock. If anybody opens the door, I'll come in and dine with him and he with me. 
And so this is the age in which we live, this age between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And that's Jesus' focus here. He's saying, look, you got to understand that my second coming is imminent. Look, the clock is ticking. And it can happen at any moment. Jesus can return before I finish my next sentence. This is the truth. There's nothing hindering Christ's second coming. And when Jesus comes in his second coming, he ain't coming as a suffering servant. He's coming as a conquering king. And when Jesus returns as a conquering king, having given the the nations over 2,000 years to repent and to receive Christ, when he returns in his second coming, time's up, baby. It's all over. And now he comes as the conquering king. And that can happen at any moment. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? See, because here's what Jesus said. Jesus says, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so also will be the coming of will the coming of the Son of Man be? Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. What's he say? Watch therefore for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. What Jesus says is this. Look, just as people in the days of Noah were oblivious to God's coming judgment, just focused on business as usual, parties, weddings, life, people today are just as busy with their life and plans. They're just as busy. Hey, do you know the Lord might return today? No, I didn't know that, but you just reminded me I got a return uh, a blouse that I bought at the store. Right? Hey, did you know the Lord could return today? Yeah, 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 I know that, but right now I got I to gotta return this you know, kind of thing. Like we're all caught up in the stuff that we have to do and we either ignore it or we pay it lip service. I like how Chuck Smith explains this because he puts it in context for the whole chapter 12 as we're studying it. He says, if you live your life with this expectation of Jesus' imminent return, he says, it will markedly alter your actions and your attitudes, especially towards the worldly things of which Jesus has just been speaking. What is my attitude towards material things? What if the Lord comes tonight? Then what value are all these material things going to be to me? If my master comes for me tonight, all of those things, these things that I've been worried about, all of these things that I've been giving so much time to, what value will they be to me at that point? And so this is this this needfulness, man, we, we need... To, to, to be watching expectantly. Now, another reason, by the way, just a, just, a, just a freebie, I'll throw it in there. Another reason we need to be watching expectantly is because the enemy wants to attack us. I think about Peter in the garden. He kept falling asleep. And Jesus is saying to him, wait and watch. Watch in prayer. And he keeps falling asleep. And the disciples, when they keep falling asleep. And Jesus says to them, watch and pray, here it is, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, Paul has the same warning in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, see then that you walk circumspectly. That's watchful. 
It's got your head on a swivel, man. That's how you're supposed to walk. Why? Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the times because, here it is, the days are evil. And so we need to be watching expectantly. And so Jesus says that these three things characterize faithfulness. He says our relationship, our responsibility, and our readiness. These are the things that characterize faithfulness. Well, quickly, then Peter said to him, verse 41, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour when he's not aware and will cut him into two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do anything to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Now, Jesus asks this question. He says, hey, do you say this to us or is this to everybody? And Jesus now answers, and he answers by, by listing, really, how leaders become leaders in the first place. If you notice what Jesus says there, what's he say? He, who is it that, that, that is entrusted with leadership? Well, it's those who've proven themselves faithful. That's what Jesus is laying out here. That, that, the, that hey, is this for the leaders or for everybody? Jesus is like, well, how do leaders become leaders in the first place? They're faithful when they ain't leaders. And then they become leaders and they continue to be faithful. You know, that's the 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, right? So, so Jesus basically says, look, the parable applies to everybody. That's what he's saying. And, and, and everybody's going to be held accountable. It applies both to leaders, and it applies both to the followers. It applies to everybody who calls themselves a servant. That listen, they have to live as servants of Christ with their waist girded. They have to live with their lamps burning. They have to watch for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. But Jesus also makes it clear here in this text that some are going to be held to even a higher standard. That this, this, the, this exhortation that we've been studying, it applies to all of us in this room but that there are those in this room, myself among them, who are going to be held to an even higher standard. Notice what he, what he, what he says there. He, he says, um, uh, for, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. So some are going to be held to an even higher standard, Right? And he says there in verse 47 and 48, and I want you to see this. 
that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to, to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes, but he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few, for everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. Now, at a first glance, it might seem like God winks at the immature believers um, and he punishes the mature believers. That's not what the Lord is saying here at all. Uh, he's simply emphasizing that there is a higher standard for those who are in a position of leadership, for those who know better, right? See the same warning in James chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you shall receive a stricter judgment. <clears throat> so it's not that God winks at sin for, for the others. He's just emphasizing what's going to happen to the leaders. But listen, I want you to take note of verses 45 there and, and 46. He says, if that servant says in heart, my master is delaying and coming and begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him at an hour when he's not aware. Just get this. What's he going to say? Is he going to sharply rebuke him? No, he's going to cut him in two. He's going to appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Wow, that's some strong language. What do we do with that? Because if you read this, man, this is hotly debated and people will argue and they'll say, what's happening here is Jesus is saying, you better be careful because you could possibly lose your salvation. Let me tell you, the Bible's clear that there's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. So I don't think salvation is what is in view here when when Jesus is speaking. Here's what I think that he's talking about. I think what Jesus is talking about here is a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, really quickly, let me just say this. There's, there's two judgments that, that are yet in the future, okay? God will judge those who have rejected Jesus and those he will judge by their works. These are people who don't want to be judged by the work of Jesus. They want to be judged by their own works, whether they've completely rejected Jesus or whether they think they, they've received Jesus, but really they're trusting in their own works. Uh, you know, they, they've made their religion, it's Jesus and it's my good works. God says, well, look, if you want, you, you want to be judged according to your works, I'll do that, but the end result is hell. That's, that's the great white throne judgment that, that Revelation 20 talks about. Now, those that have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, there's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. So your future, when you go and have to face judgment, you're not going to be judged according to life and death that's already been settled. In Jesus Christ, you have life, and you have life for all of eternity. But you still have to go before a judgment, and that judgment is the judgment seat of Christ. And when you and I go before the judgment seat of Christ, our salvation's already been settled, but now what's being judged is our works and our reward in heaven. Paul talks about this in in 1 and 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's you. You can put your name, we must all. That's that's you, that's me. Ted must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Brenda must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? That each may, one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul expands on this idea in 1 Corinthians. He says, anyone who builds on that foundation, speaking of the foundation of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, 
And he says anyone who builds on that foundation, talking about the sanctifying work that you will now do as a believer, the things that you do, I'm girding my waist, I'm serving God in Jesus' name. He says anyone who builds in that way may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw, but on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work uh, has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like somebody barely escaping a wall of flames. You'll be in heaven, but you'll be in the smoking section. And everything that you said was in Jesus' name gets burned up. You get no reward for it. Okay? And I think that's what's in view here. But listen, as I draw this to a close right now, I need your attention. Because here's the thing. What this whole section is all about is are you living in a condition that you shouldn't be comforted in? That's the idea. Jesus says, you got to be waiting, you got to be watchful, you got to have your waist girded, you got to be looking expectantly for the, for the Lord's return, and you got to be serving as a faithful servant of mine. And he says, some people, they call themselves servants, and they're getting drunk, and they're all caught up into how they live, they mistreat people, they're excessively indulging in the pleasures of this world. And rather than living the girded life, the faithful life, the life that radiates Jesus Christ, there's really not a lot of difference on the external between them and everybody else in the world. And so the question for us today as we come to the communion table and as we remember what Jesus has done for us and as we have this exhortation of how, are we, how faithful are we being, it's, listen, am I living today in a condition that I shouldn't be comforted in. I might be saved, but am I acting like it?